0: Reeling from all the terrible news, but not sure how to take action? I'm Kelly. I'm Lila. And this is What Can I Do? Each week, we interview activists about how they took action, what got them started, who helped them along the way, and what they'd do differently next time. In the process, we offer concrete advice on how to take the leap from freaking out on Twitter to making a difference. So let's get started. Hi, everyone. I am Kelly Pollack. This is What Can I Do, the podcast where we help you figure out what you can do to help make the world a better place. Today, I am on with Jessica Nordell, the author of The End of Bias, A Beginning, How We Eliminate Unconscious Bias and Create a More Just World. So what you can do to create that more just world is exactly what we're going to talk about today. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. Could you start by talking just a little bit about what inspired you to write this book? seems like it was a long process to do this research <laughs> and write it. So uh, what inspired it?
1: Absolutely. So I, I'm a journalist, and I write a lot about prejudice, discrimination, bias, and related issues. And over the years, I was writing about these subjects really with the focus of a journalist. You know, journalists expose problems we we define problems we try to you know persuade an audience or readers to care about a problem it's very focused on kind of unpacking what the problem is and over the years of writing about this I started to kind of get this just like itch to try to go beyond just talking about the problem I really wanted to understand like you know the purpose of your podcast like what do <laughs> we do right like what is there a path forward is there a way for people to change and if so how do people actually change so that was kind of the the starting point for this book i was really trying to answer that question and so the book is this you know attempt to to really look at approaches that have been shown to change people's behavior that to you know, to allow people to actually behave in ways that are more like in line with their values
0: so you approach this as a, a writer, a journalist, uh, really as a scientist, but it seems like writing the book changed you too. Can you talk about that process?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I am primarily a science writer, and I went into the project thinking it was going to be kind of a straightforward science book. I, which sounds totally naive now that I'm saying that loud, but I thought, okay, I'm going to look at the social science research. I'm going to understand all of the different research you know programs and interventions that have been shown to change people's behavior i'm going to analyze it and synthesize it and i'm going to bring it to readers and isn't that going to be amazing and little did i know that the project would totally change me because as i you know dug into the research and as i just totally immersed myself in this project, I was forced to confront what was happening inside my own mind as well. And I mean, there's one statistic I I came across that suggested that 90% of people think they're more objective than average. (laughs) And I would, you know, I put myself in that category. Like I went into the project thinking, well, I'm probably a little less biased than everyone else. And so I'm going to, you know, share this, you know, this, this wealth of information with, with everyone who needs it. And what I found was that I was just as much in need of it, if not more than, than anyone else.
0: So what does that process look like? That sort of figuring out that you also have bias or were there kind of aha moments for you?
1: Oh my gosh. Well, you know, I there's so many, it's hard to even pick one. I mean, I can tell you about one particular moment that was really alarming to me, which, which happened during the course of writing the book. This was several years ago. I was in a a library, a university library near where I live. And I was quietly, you know, reading and writing and working in this big cavernous space in the library. And it was during finals week. So there were lots and lots of students, but everybody was like quietly working. And at one point while I was sitting there, a couple of students entered or a couple of young men entered. I didn't know if they were students or not. A couple of young men entered the library and they walked kind of the length of the library. And when they got to the far end um, of the room where I was sitting, they unrolled prayer rugs and they got down and on their knees. And this really shocking thing happened, which is I found my palms getting sweaty and I found myself feeling this like anxiety, fear response. And I was like, what is happening? It was, you know, it was this sort of deeply ingrained connection in my mind between Islam and a sense of fear or uncertainty or anxiety, you know, that I didn't even know was there until I suddenly had this like spontaneous fear response. So, I mean, that kind of thing happened so many times I would, I would notice a response in myself and then really have to start to unpack where it came from and what, was, what, I, what I was going to do about it.
0: So uh, you write, especially toward the beginning of the book about this sort of disconnect sometimes, right, between what people think they would want to do and, and what they actually do
1: right so this is
0: kind of what we're talking about right like you think that you're objective and you're scientific and you write uh, but actually there's these things going on Mm -hmm. Uh, of course it's not just you that it happens to it happens to everybody it's sort of the way uh, that they report on their values and their beliefs and their actions and it's not all necessarily the same so can you tease that out a little bit what what's actually going on here
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's sort of the idea of like unconscious bias or implicit bias, these, you know, words, these phrases that we hear a lot um, tossed around really came about to make sense of a paradox. And so this paradox is like what you're describing that, you know, if you ask people what their values are, if you ask people if they believe in equality, they say yes. But then if you observe their behavior, they often behave in different ways, which like we see in so many different studies you know in healthcare in education in public safety in criminal justice like you name it there's like no i think there's like no field of human endeavor that isn't touched by this in some way and so so to your question of like what's happening i mean the kind of the predominant idea right now is that we because we live in a culture that is constantly feeding us stereotypes and associations about different groups we absorb that Information, we might call it cultural knowledge. We absorb stereotypes and associations and beliefs, and that gets stored in our memory. And then when we encounter a person who belongs to a category that we've learned about over our, you know, sort of acculturation in a society. All of that stuff that's been stored in our memory starts to come to the forefront, and it starts to influence our interactions. And so it can it can influence how we feel. Like in the example I shared with you, it can influence what we predict, what we expect to happen, um, what the what we think the other person's going to do, how how we feel, what we say it can sort of start to influence all of these parts of us that we're not even aware are being influenced. So that's kind of the our best kind of understanding about what's happening when you see this bizarre conflict between what people say they believe and then what they actually do.
0: So what is it then that we actually want to focus on changing? Is it the bias? Is it the belief? Uh, like, like where do we want to make that intervention? Is it all of it? You know, what, how, do, how do we do this?
1: It's a great question. You know, I... <laughs> there's sort of like a constellation of different approaches that I found make a difference in people's behavior. And they they exist sort of at all stages of human interaction. So absolutely, you can definitely intervene on the individual, you know, by doing things like developing an awareness of what's happening, developing a mindful, a sense of mindfulness and attention to kind of what's happening in our own minds, that's like the first step, right? To just be able to see what's happening. So that's more on the individual level. But then there are also kind of more structural interventions that are really effective. Like one of the stories that I tell in the book is of this really amazing intervention at Johns Hopkins Hospital, where um, some trauma surgeons were noticing that blood clot intervention, blood clot prevention wasn't being carried out in the way that it should. People weren't getting the right blood clot prevention when they were coming into the hospital for, for trauma and for surgery. And so they developed this, they, they tried something that they weren't even thinking was going to have an effect on bias. They were just trying to improve the healthcare treatment. And so they had doctors start to use a checklist, a computerized checklist in order to make decisions about treatment. And Long story short, I mean, it's a really interesting story how it all came about. But long story short, they found that it was really effective in improving treatment in general. And then when they went back and they looked at disparities, they found that before this intervention, women were significantly more likely to not be prescribed the appropriate treatment. And after the intervention, the gender gap disappeared. So that's like an amazing you know, example of a structural intervention that's actually not focused on changing people at all. Like the doctors weren't asked to be less biased. They were just required or strongly recommended to to use this more objective way of making decisions. And then the result was that it totally eliminated the gender gap, the gender disparity.
0: I think a related question then is the difference between trying to change individuals and to try to change society. Mm -hmm. So obviously, we can't go out and change the whole world immediately. But it's easy to think of sort of small ways you can do this, maybe how you can make change in yourself. But if we're trying to think about how you can make sort of a more systemic institutional change, it seems so big and so difficult to do. Could you talk a little bit about that? You know where where we can think about being the most useful. This is such a
1: big <laughs> a big topic, and it was something that I really struggled with, to be honest. While I was working on the book, I remember—I mean, I had really had a dark night of the soul at one point, um, maybe you know, 25 percent of the way into the project, where I was just sitting with like the heaviness of the structural problems and just the broad injustice in our society and i remember waking up in the middle of the night and just like thinking you know and sort of puzzling over like what what is the good of individual change if there are these massive entrenched structural disparities and injustices like everything just needs to change everything needs to get you know burned to the ground you know and and then i i i kind of you know sat with this frustration and and almost sense of despair for for a while and what i what i really came to was this this understanding that structures are built by people laws are created by people policies are passed and supported and enforced by people so this kind of dichotomy between like the individual and the structural i think is less a dichotomy than like this interwoven reality because we we determine the structures and then the structures in turn shape our behavior. But if we think about you know what are some what are some like structural interventions, you know some of the approaches that I found so moving and so powerful were like I'm thinking of of one approach that happened in um, a police department where a civil rights lawyer, career civil rights lawyer, was able to work with the LAPD, the Los Angeles Police Department, to start a pilot program that changed the incentives for the police officers. So the goal was to create trust and and create relationships between officers and the community for, for more safety and more respect and more fairness and dignity. And the way they did that was by changing the incentives. So that so the officers, instead of being rewarded for arrests, they were rewarded for forming relationships. And that was like a deep structural change that ultimately had massive effects on the community, on safety, on you know, decreasing violent crime. And the way that she did it was by creating like a coalition of supportive partners. And being really strategic about the timing and who needed to have buy in in order to move things forward and making sure she had partners in the community who already were trusted members of the community. I mean, it was like this whole kind of amazing network that was required in order to create that kind of structural change. And I think that's, you know, one answer to that question is like, how do we do this? It's by creating broad networks of you know, sort of connected members of communities that are all working toward a common goal and all have a a, a sense of buy-in and a sense of ownership.
0: So you were talking about the the police and Watts in the LAPD. I think the moment that stuck out to me the most in this book and, and that I actually keep coming back to over and over again, it wasn't that story, but it was another story about police and mindfulness. Uh, so you talk about a police officer who right before he would respond to a call, he would uh, like almost have a meditation, like a mantra to himself that says, we're on the same side, we're in this together. It was so powerful. And I, I actually found myself sort of using it. I was going into meeting and thinking that it was going to be kind of contentious and saying, we're all on the same side, we're on the same side. And it was just kind of mind blowing talk a little bit about mindfulness why why it works how it works uh and and how that can help us sort of overcome bias
1: yeah absolutely i know i found i found the intersection between police and mindfulness to be really fascinating as well you know mindfulness does a lot of a lot of things for the biased brain you know one of the things that it does is it it creates some space between the what we're taking in say the stimulus and our response so it creates a little bit of room so that we don't have to be so reactive and unconscious bias is really an, you know an unexamined spontaneous reaction that that happens without our recognition and so when we practice mindfulness, when we practice different forms of meditation that kind of enhance our ability to just see what's going on and create a little bit more spaciousness, it gives us the freedom to choose what we're going to do instead of just react. Another thing that it really does, though, is it helps us. Oh God, I mean, it does, it has like so many different interesting effects. One is that bias becomes worse when we are under stress and when we're under time pressure and when we're really taxed mentally these are these are conditions that make stereotyping a, a lot worse we're more likely to rely on shortcuts when we just don't feel like we have a lot of mental bandwidth at the moment and one thing that mindfulness practice does is it starts to calm down things like chronic stress it it relaxes our cognitive load somewhat so it gives us again like more opportunity to react in the way that we want to. Like the, you know, the officer that you're describing was someone who I had some really interesting conversations with him. I mean, he, he had seen himself as this sort of like tough on crime, kind of like skull crushing cop when he was starting out. And he was really opposed and really skeptical of the idea of, of mindfulness or meditation. The only reason that he kind of, ended up buying into the program was there was uh, another lieutenant who he really admired, who was sort of leading the way. And so I thought, okay, if that guy's doing it, maybe it's not so bad, which by the way, is a theme that I heard over and over is particularly with public safety over time though, he found that it allowed him to really show up in a much more healthy, whole humane way. And exactly like the, the, you know, the moment that you're describing he he frequently would sit in a car and just take a few moments to breathe and refocus on what his purpose was before going out on a call, before going in and actually interacting with people. And he said it completely transformed the way that he showed up. Just, you know, as you have found too, like if you just take a moment to remember, like what are you actually here for? It's transformative. So Yeah. So mindfulness is like such a powerful antidote to these kind of habitual responses.
0: I suspect that a lot of people who listen to this podcast think that, you know, like you think I'm less biased than a lot of people, you know. But I think one place that that political activists especially probably have bias that they don't realize is in the way that they respond to people from the other political party. And so that I think you know I, I think about that a lot myself. That I you know I'll catch myself making certain assumptions, uh, having certain reactions to to people who are you know from another party or you know just appear possibly like they could be from a different political party. So I wonder if you could help me think through what what are the the techniques? What are the things we could do to try to to sort of fight that impulse? You know whether that's like a, a mindfulness and noticing kind of thing or it's just like a <laughs> a checklist type of approach where we just sort of you know stop it in its tracks from being able to affect things
1: I think you are completely right and in fact in some ways it's kind of an acceptable form of prejudice in our society if you're on in one party people in your party aren't necessarily going to give you very much flack for saying horrible things about the other party, right? Mm-hmm. And I I hear it all the time. Like people on the left say very stereotyping things about people on the right. And you know, part of it is this phenomenon known as outgroup homogeneity, which is kind of a mouthful, but basically what it means is that there's this kind of human tendency To see our own group, whatever group that is that we're part of, to see our own group as kind of marvelously diverse and complex right, and nuanced and like full of so many different kinds of people who are so different from one another in such interesting ways. But the other group that we don't belong to, we see as homogenous and monolithic and basically all the same. And this, I see this all the time in political discourse. And so, yeah, how do, you know, what do we do there? I think there are a lot of approaches that um, from the sort of prejudice reduction and bias reduction literature that could be really helpful here. One of the approaches that I found extremely persuasive is the idea of, forming meaningful relationships across differences and specific kinds of meaningful relationships. So, so there's this, like, I won't go too into the like, (laughs) into that like academic weeds here, but there's this, there's this idea in psychology of contact theory. And, And the idea is that if you bring people together that are equal status and they're collaborating toward a shared goal, this can be a powerful tool for decreasing stereotyping between the groups. It's not just getting to know people, but it's actually working collaboratively that seems to be really important. And this, this has been shown to be effective like um, on sports teams. Like If you bring people of different groups together and you have them join the same sports team, they tend to be more likely to want to be friends with people of different groups at the end of you know, spending time playing sports with, with those folks. And so I think, you know, this could totally happen in the political realm. Like we could find ways to bring. I mean, I guess you could say, like, you know, ideally, this is what Congress is, or the Senate is—is like people coming together to solve issues.
0: But it doesn't always, you know, it doesn't always
1: seem that way. So maybe, maybe this is like a more of a civic project that we could that we could try out as, as you know, not professional politicians, but as. As people who have political affiliations who want to create more, you know, less polarization and less divisiveness, I think one approach would be really finding ways to collaborate on a shared goal, find a shared goal and then and then work with people across differences.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, I think it we're laughing about Congress, but I, I think in a way it does. Like I, I've heard Congress people talk about their fellow members of Congress in in various sort of Human, yes, of, and and not sort of other that like they might not be able to come together at the end of the day and, and get a bill passed or something, but they they do seem to have sort of genuine relationships across the aisle. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think another thing that we can do is to try to, as much as we can, focus less on trying to persuade. The other and more on trying to understand the other, there is a beautiful quote, and I wish I could remember who who the originator of this um, idea was, but the line is, if you can't understand someone's behavior, it's because you can't see their memories. And I wonder, you know, in these like politically divided times, if we could see each other's memories, How would that change the way that we related to one another, that we understood one another?
0: Yeah. Or barring that we could just change the congressional softball game to instead of being Republicans versus Democrats, some other grouping.
1: (laughs) I mean, that would be a great place to start. Put people on the same team, right?
0: So one of the actions, of course, that people can take uh, is to read your book so that they can find out these different approaches, see how they work and what situations they work and, and start to find ways to implement it. So how can people get the book?
1: So it's available anywhere you normally find books. Most independent bookstores have it. Of course, it's on all the major online retailers as well. And if you're interested in, if you're part of an organization and you're interested in a whole, your whole team reading it or a larger group, you can buy the book in bulk at a discount from Porchlight Books. So those are those are some places to find the book. And then if you want to continue the conversation with me, you can sign up for my newsletter, which is called Who We Are to Each Other. And that is available on my website,
0: jessicanordell.com. And there's also an audiobook. I, I'm a huge fan of audiobooks. <laughs> yes, there's an
1: audiobook. there's an ebook. If you'd like to read the book in Spanish, it was just translated into Spanish, Chinese, and I think the Dutch and Japanese versions are coming soon as well.
0: All right. Uh, so we'll put links on uh, the website on our website so people can find it there too. Was there anything else you wanted to make sure we talk about?
1: I guess the only other thing I'd say is i I love hearing from readers. So if anyone Um, listening to this, picks up the book and makes their way through it, I would love to hear what people think, responses, ways that it inspired or arguments you have with it. I'm just, I'm very, I love hearing from readers.
0: Great, and I think my my last point that I would make is that uh, you talk in the end about the importance of learning history, uh, and as someone who also hosts a history podcast, I would just second that. Say yes, <laughs> we need to. Especially the ugly parts of American history are are so important to to learn, uh, and I think really give you super valuable insight on on where your own biases are coming from, and uh, just can help change that.
1: I think history is essential for not only the reason you describe, which is like, we need to understand the past, particularly the the prejudices of the past in order to really understand the way society works now. But I think history can also provide really inspiring examples of other patterns, other ways of doing things. The Haudenosaunee Confederacy, which we often known as the Iroquois Confederacy, was an example of a society where women had a huge amount of political power. And it was not shocking for women to have major roles in business dealings and business decisions. Um, In fact, some of the Europeans who had treaty meetings with the Haudenosaunee were bewildered by the fact that women kept showing up to these meetings. And this was, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And so, I think there are examples from history, from other cultures, other times and places that can be inspiring examples for us as well, in addition to the instructive examples that, that help us understand sort of how we got to where we are today.
0: So, Jessica, thank you so much. This was great.
1: Thanks so much, Kelly. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to What Can
0: I Do? You can find show notes and credits for this episode at Podcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio used by What Can I Do is in the public domain or used with permission.
1: Original artwork is by Matthew Weflin and used with express permission. You can find us on Twitter at What Can I Do Pod. To contact us with questions or guest suggestions, please email hello at whatcanidopodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends.